I'm Philippa Webb, Professor of Public International Law at King's College London. And in this series on diplomatic and consular relations, I will be giving four lectures. In the first lecture, I introduce the topic and then focus on the diplomatic mission and its features. In the second lecture, I consider diplomatic and consular immunities, special missions immunities, and asylum. In the third lecture, I focus on consular relations, including the important issue of consular notification and assistance. And in the final lecture, I look at what happens when there's a breakdown in diplomatic relations, including the severance of relations and dispute settlement that may arise. So turning to this first lecture on the introduction to the topic and the focus on the diplomatic mission. The concept of diplomacy dates back to ancient Greece. And Sir Evil Roberts defines it as the application of intelligence and tact to the conduct of official relations between the governments of independent states, as the conduct of business between states by peaceful means, and quoting the Duke of Broglie, the best means devised by civilization for preventing international relations from being governed by force alone. At its core, diplomatic relations is about sending people to communicate with their foreign counterparts. And even in this digital age, we have not found a better replacement for face-to-face -face interaction. So in this first lecture, I'm going to first look at the purposes of diplomatic and consular relations. Second, I'll look at the main sources in this area of law. And then third, I'll look at the diplomatic mission, its functions, this concept of inviolability of the mission, and specifically at how we should treat its archives and communications. So turning to the first issue of the purpose. Diplomatic relations aims to protect the interests of the sending state, whereas consular relations protect the interests of nationals. And a key distinction is with whom the different officials interact. If the function is carried out by contacts with the central government, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, or other central government ministries, this will be diplomatic functions. If, however, the contacts are more with regional or local authorities, such as regional governments, the police, prisons, or commercial officials, this tends to be consular functions. Diplomatic relations require the recognition of states, whereas consular relations do not. With diplomatic relations, the recognition of the state and the establishment of relations usually go hand in hand. And an offer to establish relations with a newly formed state will usually imply recognition of that state. Similarly, the disappearance of a state, for example, if it integrates with another state, is followed by the ending of its separate diplomatic relations with other states. This is what happened with the reunification of East and West Germany. There are, however, examples where states have recognized each other without establishing diplomatic relations. Consular relations, on the other hand, do not require the recognition of a state or its government. The consul deals with regional or local authorities and not with the central government in most cases. 
For example, the United Kingdom for many years maintained a consulate in Hanoi without recognising North Vietnam as a state. The UK also maintained a consular post in Taiwan after it recognised the government of the People's Republic of China. And between 1992 and 1995, the UK mission in Belgrade was headed by a charge d'affaires and consul general in the absence of formal recognition of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia during that period. So turning now to the sources in the area of the, is this area of law. Unlike many other areas of international law, diplomatic and consular relations have two long-established and widely ratified treaties that are widely considered to reflect customary international law. So this makes the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations of 1961 and the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations of 1963 the starting point and the key reference for both of these topics. These two treaties were adopted within two years of each other in the early 1960s. The articles had been prepared by the International Law Commission with the aim of codifying the existing practice and rules of customary international law. But the conventions also contained some progressive elements, some developments of the pre-existing law. According to Article 73 of the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, the treaties in force before the convention remain in place and new bilateral agreements that confirm, supplement, extend or amplify the existing rules may also be concluded. There isn't an equivalent provision in the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. But in addition to these treaties, of course, diplomatic and consular relations are governed by customary international law, by general legal principles, by bilateral agreements, and also in interaction with national law. And the preambles to the two conventions expressly provide that the rules of customary international law should continue to govern questions not expressly regulated by the provisions. So I now turn to my third point, which is on the diplomatic mission. There is, in the first place, no requirement that a state establish a permanent diplomatic mission overseas. It may be established if it's considered necessary for the conduct of diplomatic functions or if the conditions and if the conditions in the receiving state permit the representatives to exercise their functions safely and effectively. A state may also decide that it does not require a permanent embassy if it has a limited political or commercial interest in that particular state or very few of its nationals reside there. And there are other options for maintaining diplomatic relations outside of having a permanent mission. There can be contacts in the capital of a third state, usually one that's nearby, or in the margins of international organisations such as the UN. There might be occasional special missions to discuss specific issues of mutual interest. There could be multiple accreditation. There can be the protection of the interests of the sending state by a third state. And of course, there could also be diplomatic uh, interests protected by consular relations. Now, the functions of a diplomatic mission are set out in Article 3 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. 
and this is not an exhaustive list. Some of the functions that it lists are representing the sending state in the receiving state, protecting in the receiving state the interests of the sending state and its nationals, negotiating with the government of the receiving state, ascertaining by all lawful means conditions and developments in the receiving state and reporting back to their government, and a general purpose of promoting friendly relations, including developing economic, cultural and scientific relations. In terms of developing economic relations, this usually refers to the promotion of trade between the two states or the promotion of investment. In the light of Article 42 of the Vienna Convention, this activity may not be carried out with the purpose of generating profit. And nothing in the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations prevents the performance of consular functions by a diplomatic mission. So there is some overlap between these two areas. Diplomatic agents may exercise consular functions on an occasional basis. And of course, the diplomatic mission acts on the instructions received from the government of the sending state. So even though we don't have an exhaustive list of the functions of a diplomatic mission, there are limits on what those functions can be. A state cannot use mission premises in a manner incompatible with the functions of the mission as laid down in the Vienna Convention or other rules of general international law or any special agreements between the two states concerned. According to Article 3 of the Vienna Convention, a mission must act within the limits permitted by international law. And duties are owed to the receiving state. The mission must respect the laws and regulations of the receiving state, and it has a duty not to interfere in the internal affairs of the receiving state. In practice, diplomats have occasionally been willing to speak out against human rights violations that they witness or are aware of in the receiving state. For example, when Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest in Burma, diplomats from various states called for her release. Similarly with Nelson Mandela when he was in prison in South Africa. And as I will discuss in the next lecture, there is the issue of diplomatic asylum where diplomats do take a very strong stance towards the receiving state. As Amal Clooney observes in Sato's diplomatic practice, much of the work of a diplomat in the human rights arena is based on discretion and government guidance. And there is no requirement under international law that a state exercise diplomatic protection on behalf of its citizens. But there are times when the diplomat has a legal duty to act to protect human rights. In the United Kingdom, there has been a case called Abbasi in which the court held that there is scope for judicial review of a refusal to render diplomatic assistance to a British subject who is suffering violation of a fundamental human right as a result of the conduct of the authorities of a foreign state. So I now turn to this concept of the inviolability of the mission. This is a concept that is related to immunity, but is different from it. 
Article 22 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations provides that the premises of the mission shall be inviolable and the agents of the receiving state may not enter them except with the consent of the head of mission. Inviolability is a status accorded to premises, persons or property physically present in the territory of a sovereign state but not subject to its jurisdiction in the usual way. So this means that the receiving state cannot exercise its sovereign rights in the premises of the mission. There are no exceptions to the rule of inviolability of mission premises, whereas the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations expressly provides that consent to enter is presumed in cases of fire or other disaster. Eileen Denzer has explained that historically there had been this legal fiction that embassies were somehow outside the territory of the receiving state and were regarded as portions or enclaves of the sending state. This is, as she points out, a misleading and dangerous approach. It is now accepted and understood that an embassy is not deemed to be foreign territory. Marriages or crimes occurring on a diplomatic mission premises are regarded in law as taking place in the territory of the receiving state, not the sending state. The residence of the head of mission is considered inviolable as well. This is expressly provided for in Article 30 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. The inviolability attaches to the diplomatic agent's status. So it includes inviolability of his or her temporary residence while the diplomat is there. A permanent residence, however, does not lose its inviolable status when the diplomat leaves temporarily. And inviolability is accorded to all property of the diplomat, including bank accounts. Now there are some exceptions that are laid out in Article 31, for example, of the Vienna Convention. And to just give some practical significance to this concept of inviolability, I want to highlight three interstate cases that considered its application. The first was uh, in the arbitration between Eritrea and Ethiopia and the partial award of 2005. Now, following a drawn-out armed conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia, a claims commission was set up. And one of the many claims that each side made was a claim by Eritrea that Ethiopian authorities had entered the residence of the Eritrean head of mission without permission. Ethiopia defended its actions by claiming that it had sealed off the residence because of evidence that Eritrea had been using the premises for illegal purposes, and they accused it of stockpiling weapons and counterfeiting money. The tribunal held that the Ethiopian security agents who had entered, ransacked, searched, and seized uh, property from the Eritrean embassy residence had done so without Eritrea's consent. And it held that any suspicion of criminal activity even if justifiable, cannot serve as a defense to breaching Article 22 
of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. It held that the residence as part of the diplomatic premises was absolutely inviolable and that these actions had been in breach of international law. The second case is a case that is still pending at this time before the International Court of Justice. It is the case of immunities and criminal proceedings between Equatorial Guinea and France. In this case, there are allegations by French authorities that Mr. Obiang, who has held various senior positions in the government of Equatorial Guinea, has been engaged in misappropriation of public funds. And the investigation has focused on, among other things, a building located at 42 Avenue, Avenue Fauche in Paris. Equatorial Guinea has claimed that this address, 42 Avenue Fauche, is part of the premises of its diplomatic mission in France and therefore enjoys inviolability. When a Paris court found Mr. Obiang guilty of certain offences, it sentenced him to a three-year suspended prison term and a fine of 30 million euros. And to this end, the tribunal in Paris ordered the confiscation of assets from that building at 42 Avenue Fauche. So the dispute, which will eventually be decided by the ICJ, is whether under Article 22 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, the building constitutes part of the premises of the mission of Equatorial Guinea in France. If the answer is yes, then there could have been some violations of the Vienna Convention. The third case is a case between Congo and Uganda that was decided by the court, uh, the International Court of Justice, in 2005. The dispute arose from an armed conflict between the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Uganda. And the Congo had brought a case claiming that Uganda had violated various uh, rules on the use of force and non-intervention. Now, Uganda brought a counterclaim in this case, saying that Congolese armed forces had carried out attacks on the Ugandan embassy in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And they said that these Congolese forces had attacked individuals inside the diplomatic premises and removed property from the premises, which they said was a breach of Article 22. The court found that the attacks on the Ugandan diplomatic premises did breach Article 22. And they even took quite an expansive interpretation of the protections of Article 22, because they said the acts of maltreatment by Congolese forces of persons within the Ugandan embassy were necessarily consequential upon the breach of the inviolability of the embassy premises prohibited by Article 22 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, regardless of the nationality of the individuals or their status of, as diplomats. So even ordinary individuals without diplomatic status who were within the premises were protected by the inviolability under Article 22. Now, a matching concept to inviolability is the obligation on the receiving state to protect the premises of the diplomatic mission. And this is Article 22, Paragraph 2 
of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, which says that the receiving state is under a special duty to take all appropriate steps to protect the premises of the mission against any intrusion or damage and to prevent any disturbance of the peace of the mission or impairment of its dignity. Even where no active breach of duty has occurred, in practice, receiving states tend to compensate sending states for damage to their mission premises on an ex gratia basis. This duty to protect the premises is one of conduct. It is to take all appropriate steps and it's not necessarily going to result in the total protection of the mission. And I want to mention two International Court of Justice cases to illustrate this point. The first is the case of United States diplomatic and consular staff in Tehran, which was decided in 1980. Civil unrest in Iran had led to various attacks on diplomatic premises, including the US Embassy in Tehran. And there were two attacks that formed the subject of the court's consideration in this case. In the first attack on the US Embassy, an armed group seized the embassy and took 70 prisoners, including the ambassador, and killed two embassy staff members. In that instance, the Iranian authorities acted promptly in respect of the embassy's appeal for assistance and managed to return control of the premises to the US officials. But then there was a second attack in which the Iranian authorities, according to the US, took no apparent steps to either prevent the attack on the embassy or to cause the militants to withdraw or to stop the attack before it reached its completion. The ICJ held that the first attack did not amount to a breach of Article 22 because in that instance, Iran had taken all appropriate steps to prevent or stop the attacks. However, the second attack the court found did violate Article 22 because they found the Iranian authorities were fully aware of their obligations, they were fully aware of the urgent need for action, but had failed to comply with their obligations. The second case is the one I mentioned previously between Congo and Uganda that was decided in 2005 by the court. And here the court held that it was not necessary for it to, to establish who had committed the acts in question because in any event, the state had a positive duty to protect the premises. So it stated that although the evidence available is insufficient to identify with precision the individuals who removed Ugandan property, the mere fact that items were removed is enough to establish that the Democratic Republic of the Congo breached its obligations under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. So now I turn from the mission itself as a premises and a building to the contents of the mission, such as its archives. The archives and property of the mission are inviolable according to Articles 22 and 24 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. And Article 24 specifically provides the archives and documents of the mission shall be inviolable at any time and wherever they may be. The means of transport of the mission, such as diplomatic cars, are immune from search, requisition, attachment or execution. 
Now, the meaning of inviolability of archives has recently been the subject of a judgment of the United Kingdom Supreme Court in 2018. And the case is uh, R on the application of Bancourt number three against the Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs, decided on the 8th of February 2018. And I cite a national case here because this specific question of the definition of the inviolability of archives of the mission has not been interpreted on the international level in the same level of detail as this judgment. Now, the background to this case was that a claimant who represented uh, Chagosian residents claimed that the United Kingdom had established a marine protected area around the Chagos archipelago for an improper purpose, arguing it was to make resettlement by the Chagosians impractical. Now, in support of this claim, the claimant relied on a document that had been published in newspapers uh, in the United Kingdom that purported to be a cable from the US Embassy in London to the US government in Washington, and also to the embassy in Mauritius and various other military command posts. This alleged cable uh, had originally been published online by WikiLeaks. Now, the dispute here was that the United Kingdom government argued that the English courts could not admit this alleged cable into evidence because this would violate Article 24 of the Vienna Convention on the inviolability of archives and Article 27 on the inviolability of official correspondence. The United Kingdom Supreme Court, after extensive argument, agreed that in general, the inviolability of mission archives meant that they could not be used in a domestic court of a receiving country, absent a waiver by the sending state. But in this specific case, the court found that there were two qualifications to that rule. First, they said the document must constitute or remain part of the mission archive in order to be inviolable. And second, its contents must not have been so widely disseminated in the public domain so as to destroy any confidentiality or inviolability. And in this case, they found there was no evidence to show that WikiLeaks had taken these documents from the US Embassy in London. And they said once the document had reached the State Department in Washington, it was a document in the custody of the federal government of the United States and not part of the London Embassy archive. And second, they found that since the cable had been put into the public domain by WikiLeaks and also published in newspapers such as The Guardian and The Telegraph, these publications for which the UK had no responsibility, the cable had lost its inviolability and could be admitted into evidence and used in cross-examination. A related point to this inviolability of archives and correspondence is freedom of communication, which appears in Articles 27 and 40 of the Vienna Convention. Free communication is, of course, critical for carrying out diplomatic functions effectively. And it's provided in the Vienna Convention that this communication may be unrestricted by the receiving state as long as it uses all appropriate means, which may include diplomatic couriers, 
and messages in code or cipher. But it is limited to communications between the sending state's government, missions and consulates. It does not imply any exemption from charges such as for telephone services. As for correspondence, correspondence cannot be opened by the receiving state and unlike with diplomatic bags, mission correspondence does not need to bear visible external marks of identification in order to enjoy this inviolability. Listening devices may also violate Article 22 on the inviolability of premises or in Article 27 on the freedom of communication. In practice, many countries do not adhere to these prohibitions. There is much evidence in state practice of eavesdropping by states on each other. We cannot identify any opinio juris that supports the assertion that the law has changed since the conclusion of the Vienna Convention. So the inviolability of correspondence and the protection of freedom of communication remain. There is also the specific protections for the diplomatic bag in Article 27. It provides that the diplomatic bag shall not be opened or detained. The packages of the, of the diplomatic bag must bear visible external marks and may contain only diplomatic documents or articles intended for official use. There are no requirements in the convention for the shape, size or weight of diplomatic bags, but states have declined to accept trucks, lorries and aircrafts as being defined as diplomatic bags. Article 27 refers to visible external marks of their character on diplomatic bags and this is where national law may provide more detail on what is required. The UK for example requires a seal in wax, metal or plastic or a and a tag or stick-on label addressed to the head of mission, head of a consular post or the Minister for Foreign Affairs carrying the official stamp of the sending state or the sending diplomatic mission. So the provision on the diplomatic bag refers to articles for official use, which is also not defined. But in practice, uh, some states have specified, such as the Republic of Korea, that this will be limited to official documents and materials, semi-official correspondence and communications, and other matters recognised as important by a Minister of Foreign Affairs and Heads of Mission. Under Article 41 of the Vienna Convention, diplomatic bags may not be used to carry items which are illegal imports under the laws of the receiving state, such as weapons, drugs, or in some states, alcohol. And this is where modern technology has caught up, because the Vienna Convention does not require full inviolability, but merely that the diplomatic bag may not be opened or detained. And this has been interpreted by states to allow the possibility of detecting the contents of the bag through x-rays, sniffer dogs, or other forms of scanning. There are examples in state practice of the abuse of the use of diplomatic bags. In 1964 in London, a former minister of Nigeria was found in a Nigerian crate at Stansted Airport. 
Although it was purported to be a diplomatic bag, it did not bear any official seals. And the UK government was able to open it without breaching Vienna Convention. The UK government has since held that the right to self-defence and the duty to protect human life override the obligations under Article 27 of the Vienna Convention, and it would have opened that crate even if it had been properly marked as a diplomatic bag. In 1964 in Italy, a diplomatic bag addressed to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Cairo was found to contain a drugged Israeli national. In 1980 in London, a crate addressed to the Moroccan embassy was broken open and contained 635,000 pounds worth of cannabis. And in 2012, Italian police discovered 40 kilograms of cocaine being smuggled into the country in Ecuador's diplomatic pouch. So in conclusion, technology has evolved in terms of surveillance, leaks, means of communication, and even means of transport. Interstate relations have evolved. We have different alliances and different geopolitical influences to those that existed in the 60s. New actors have emerged with an interest in disrupting diplomatic relations, such as non-state armed groups or even corporate interests. But the core principles of diplomatic relations have largely stood the test of time for six decades since the Vienna Convention was adopted. And it is perhaps in the realm of immunities where we see the strongest push for evolution and adaptation. And that is the topic of lecture two.